Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Uh, the school year has started, um, so I've switched gears from field biologist to teacher slash professor slash field biologist. And our, uh, as always, I have Matt. So how, how's it going, Matt? Well, I switched gears to the food monkey that's just throwing <laughs> rodents inside the little deli cups and feeding hatchling snakes and adult snakes. Yes. So Matt's life has become deli cup, pinky snake, deli cup, okay. pinky snake, deli cup, pinky snake. How, how many Neos do you think you are currently feeding? I love these mm. questions because it always makes you feel good about the fact that I don't have as much as you. <laughs> well... I'll put it this way. I've shipped out over 600 snakes so far this year. Holy mother of God. Yeah. And I still have hatchlings hatching, and I still have eggs being laid. So it's still kind of a interesting year, if you will. You're insane, man, in a good way. Thank you for providing us with all our baby snakes. I feel like you're like well, a one-man army. <laughs> so. That's why you drink beers and mm-hmm. clean snake cages. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you called me last night to talk about the show tonight, and I believe you were cleaning cages then, and I'm pretty sure you were cleaning cages right before you came on today. Is That's that, dead on. Fa- yeah. All right. Well, you got to be dedicated to the cause, and you certainly are. So today's guest uh, is Dr. Jen Archer, Jennifer Archer. Uh, Jen is well-known, I would say, in the Florida King Snake community, especially out of Florida, uh, and... Uh, I met Jen after I recorded, I think it was my first podcast I was ever on, um, From the Ground Up with Phelan, and I talked a little bit about crypto, and then Jen reached out, and we've been working together with you know snakes, colubrids, crypto, and I thought it'd be a great opportunity since people are always asking me about crypto if we had Jen on today to talk about crypto, how she finds it, how the vectors, kind of our conversations. And then we thought, why not talk about a couple other, well, one other parasite in particular, a roundworm called strongyloides, which is very common in um, reptile collections. So today's episode is going to involve a little bit of Florida king snake talk, a lot of disease, disease vector talk. It's more of a kind of a husbandry piece. I'm going to say this now. We're going to say it again. We're going to say it again after we say it again. None of us are veterinarians, so we're not taking the place of veterinarians. Um, But we are all scientifically oriented and in positions to kind of take notes, make observations, and then report on those observations. So that's basically what we're doing. But for the record, one more time, this is the second time I'm saying it, we're not vets. So you do want to consult your veterinarian before you do anything. So uh, updates with me before we get in with the guest um, I don't really have any updates other than the fact that the school year has officially begun. And uh, last week was great. I prepped for it. I have a light teaching load for once. And light for me means 11 hours. Um, and everything was going well. And then on Friday, a freaking bomb exploded, I feel like, at the universe. As soon as you start to feel like, okay, it's okay, boom, we had a rack that the level of infestation of mites that were in this rack was like astronomical. And what's kind of nutty about it is we were in that rack earlier in the week and we couldn't see a mite anywhere. So uh, it's inspired me to, to, 
to bring up with Matt. I think we need to just have a history slash biology of snake mites and how to kill the little bastards episode because uh, the past 72 hours of my life have been guiding students through this, this dealing with this infestation. And they just kind of, as is the case often, popped up out of nowhere, but they didn't. You know, somebody brought them in or, or they were moved from one enclosure to another. So, uh, yeah, that, that was that's pretty much been it. Um, and we just recorded no, I, last week, so it's not been that much time in between recordings this time. Yeah, Zach, I think that's a great episode um, mm-hmm. because, you know, one of the things I've always talked about, too, is it's not always about treating. But when you have a large collection, in most cases, what you want to do is preventively mm-hmm. treat not only the internal of the cage, but also the outside of the cage. Um, I am a large supporter of a product that's commercially available that I use as a preventative aspect. And, you know, it might even be something where we invite that person on because they've done a lot of research respective of snake mites too, because this is such an interesting aspect. And, you know, they are very specific to how they actually infestate, you know, collections on a larger number. Yeah, no, I hate them. And it seems like just in the, I, this was really interesting because we were in that rack. Um, the rack was actually set to come to my house, which thank God Holy we God. caught it before <laughs> it came here. Uh, and the rack was completely on its own in a room by itself, kind of in a self-induced quarantine. And nobody really interacted with the rack um, other than, you know, basic care. But they, we started interacting with it the week before school started. And the sheer volume of mites in those tubs was just like, how? And it was it was really interesting because I like we have so many people in those tubs, or at least looking, checking water, that I know that it went from like zero to a thousand in a matter of like five days. Uh which is, is kind of in, insane. So no, I think that a snake mite episode is well worth it because they plague everybody. Um at some point you're going to experience them. And I just think it'd be cool to do our deep dive on the biology of the beast. Uh, I can certainly do that being that I do arthropod biology on the side outside of the snake thing, you know? So anyway, uh, but no, that's a future episode. But other than, other than, than that, um, nothing new for me. Anything new for you? No, you know, it's really been kind of one of those things where just kind of, monitoring the collection i'm actually in the process right now of looking at some projects that i have going on and i might actually cut out a few projects just because of some holdbacks that i've had over the years so there might be some posts um made to fauna classifieds primarily maybe morph market respective of that but you know one of the things zach you and i we talked about respective was how we're going to relate to questions that come over on facebook and messenger Uh, specific to this podcast just because you know one of the hard parts for zach and i is just our our time commitments you know obviously we enjoy this podcast but when we get you know overwhelmed with messages specific to ccr radio we want to make sure that we're following up with it in a timely manner but also i think one of the bigger parts of this is the educational aspect of it because a lot of people are afraid to ask questions. I mean, it's just like being in the classroom. You don't <laughs> want to be the person in the back room raising your hand. And there are no stupid questions because None. usually every person as an audience has that same question. Um, so I, Zach and I, we chatted last night. And I think one of the 
things that we're going to start doing going forward is if someone does send a question to us, we're going to actually refer to that question first on in this podcast, answer that question in this podcast for the upcoming week and make sure that we answer it so that everyone that is a listener or follower to this podcast gets that knowledge too as well. Yeah, 100%. And if you're wondering something or you have a question, we now know that we have quite a few listeners. There's probably somebody else out there. So we get a bigger bang for our buck trying to get word out and knowledge to the masses if we answer it on while we're recording than if we answer it with you. I guess if you don't want the question to be asked publicly, you can let us know that. But otherwise, we're going to we're going to let it rip. And, and the questions that we get have been great. Some of them have made me really think. Um, and I love doing that, uh, keeping these things and, and having the critical thinking element to it is what makes it fun. So by all means, you have a question, send them our way. And then I'm going to put one more plug out there. We, we haven't said this in a while, uh, but if you have a guest that you want us to talk, like to, to reach out to, that's how we found Daniel Lawrence for the record. Uh, please let us know. Uh, we are definitely getting into the busy, busy swing of things. So um, if you send a message to, CCR on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, we may not see it because we don't check that one necessarily every single day, but you can always send it to to at least my personal account because the, I use Messenger to communicate with my students. So I'm looking at it about, I don't know, two times an hour, it feels like during the actual day. Uh, and I will definitely get the message there. So, um, yeah. Anything else, Matt? Well, you know, following up off of that, someone asked recently a question about how do you disinfect and clean multiple deli cups when cupping <laughs> snakes? Um, and, and I think this is actually a very important question, you know, respective of following up on the feeding colubrids and hatchling episode that we did. And since I do this in high numbers, I thought I would probably just sure. jump in on this. Um, so what I end up doing is actually soaking all of those deli cups in a ammonia solution in a 55 gallon drum, um, garbage can. And then afterwards I'll, I'll actually scrub them and I'll have three garbage cans set up one for soaking, one for rinsing or cleaning or washing out. And then one for like just a final dunk. And then I set all of those containers out in sunlight to basically be exposed to UVB to kill out anything that might actually be exposed in that process. Um, that's what I have found to be a very important aspect of disinfecting and cleaning. But I think even in today's episode, we might even talk about, you know, the difference between cleaning and disinfecting and sterilizing cages, um, appropriate aspects of water bowls, um, different aspects of things that might also be inside of a cage that might not necessarily be cleaned or disinfected properly because all of that can actually lead to different um, levels of parasite load or also viruses being transferred to your collection. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't think people truly understand how incredibly lethal the sun is. If you are a microorganism, it is quite literally hell. If you can't, if you are exposed to, to just flat out bright sunlight, it, it kills so many things. Uh, and, and adding that step after, you know, you had all the man-made detergents and cleaners and sterilizing agents, 
that's going to certainly wipe it out. And then when you add that last little cherry on top of baking it in sunlight, uh, you just put the, the death nail in the coffin at that point. So, well, and you know, in the hobby, a lot of people think, Oh, bleach is like yeah. the best disinfectant. It's like, no, it really isn't. Um, so yes. And you also have to be careful too, based upon that, how it actually relates into your collection. Sure. That. Okay. So there, we've answered our first question from the Facebook page to the, uh, podcast so all right cool excellent are we ready to jump in with jen i think we jump in man okay cool so our guest today as stated previously dr jennifer archer jen for the rest of the time because we're formal to a point and then that formality goes away so how are you doing tonight jen how are you doing zach Uh, i'm doing nice to be here yeah doing well um looking forward when we came up with the podcast way back when, I thought, yep, Jen's definitely coming on. So uh, we discussed when you would come on, what we would talk about, and decided that, indeed, this whole crypto thing, strongoloides thing, aseptic, septic technique in your collection thing, definitely worth discussing. But before we get to that thing uh, or, or that aspect of, of tonight's episode, let's just hear a little bit about your your back first. Let's hear your background with animals, and then let's hear your academic background. So, have you always been a snake nerd? Not a snake nerd. Recently, a snake nerd. When did you become a snake nerd? <laughs> <laughs> a snake nerd. Oh, I'm definitely one now. I, I don't know when I can say that began per se, but if I go back to when I was a kid, you know, I I was just one of those kids that had to play with all the wildlife I found in my backyard. So. Um, Some people, this is the first, I guess this is a big reveal. My first favorite animal was the American toad. There you go, cool. And and every summer, it was just the most amazing thing in the world to find a toad. You know, I'm sure every other little girl on the planet, I thought they were experiencing the same thing as me, and I don't think that was the same case, but but that was me. And then I found there were garter snakes. I grew up in Connecticut, so um, I live in Florida now, but I had, of course, a very different I didn't, ha- I didn't grow up with lizards. I think that was kind of one of the coolest things about moving here and visiting visiting family that lived down here was was seeing all these lizards because that's something we don't see in Connecticut. Oh, we had no. salamanders. We had uh, – I had painted turtles for a little bit. I used to go to uh, the local town park, and I'd, co- I'd catch the little baby turtles, and then my mother would have a conniption, but uh, I made my <laughs> mom deal with it. My dad was like, okay, I'll help clean the tank and – you know, so I had the toads. I had snakes in buckets. I never really knew how to take care of them, and we usually just let them go after a few days if they manage to not dehydrate before then. Because when you're, you know, uh, an elementary school kid, you have no idea. It's all foreign to you, the husbandry and all that stuff. And back in the day, my favorite book was called. I used to go to the library and check out this book called "The World of the Frog and the Toad." <laughs> uh, it's an excellent book. You can still buy it on eBay. I got it. I just bought it like a year ago for like seven bucks, something <laughs> like that. And it's 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 actually a great historical piece when I look back mm-hmm. at it, um, because that was what we knew back then. There wasn't all, we didn't have the internet back yeah. then. We had the Dewey Decimal System when I was in elementary school, and I would take out that book and I kind of hid because I didn't want other. I didn't wasn't pulling out fiction, and I didn't want other students to know I was doing that. Cool. But I had to know where it lived and what what I was supposed to feed it, and so that's kind of my backstory. Is I grew up in Connecticut and kept a bunch of wildlife in my house that my mom didn't approve of, <laughs> but my dad was fairly supportive of it. And so, so then I 
at what point did you bring in the captive snakes? Because so this is actually an odd story. So I don't want to go too much in depth about mm-hmm. uh, my school, but uh, it, it, you know, grad graduate school. Let me just say this real quickly, since I know I'm, I'm not used to this audience. Is it, it's kind of this mental. It's like you know, drill sergeant kind of. It, it'll mentally break you. We'll put it that way. <laughs> and so, uh, so while I'm in grad school, and I had I had some roommates. Um, I ended up just ended up with some roommates. That this one guy, he just said, you know, I, I took him to a reptile show. I I started going to reptile shows in, since 2002 here in Florida. But I never really. I, I owned a chameleon, and that was really cool. But I it. I had to on the learn uh, on a whim learn how to take care of the chameleon because they're like, oh, just feed it crickets. Well, it turns out that you can't just feed it crickets. You need to gut load them and yeah. put calcium on them and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I figured it out eventually, but it was not until I had that roommate that said, you should get a snake. And I said, man, aren't those just really expensive and very difficult to take care of? And I knew nothing about snakes. They were just these really foreign beautiful animals but i thought they were like the husbandry and the care you had to spend thousands of dollars and he's like no man you can just keep them in a clip container with with some water and I'm like really and he's like you can just buy buy pinkies frozen in a bag buy a hundred of them we'll share that together and we can both get a snake and so and he wasn't really a big reptile person per se he was just a roommate i had that thought it was cool mm-hmm. to have a snake and so he talked me into it. And I said, are you going to help me with it when I screw it up? And he's like, yeah, I'll help you with it. And and so can you guess what my first snake was? A, a Florida king snake? It was a Florida king snake. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> it was a, I was told it was a hypo mosaic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got it from Kevin Enright. And it turned out that it wasn't even a mosaic. It was just, you know, people didn't really know necessarily. Somebody bought it. Somebody said, this is what it is. And they passed it off and, gotcha. you know, and it was a cool little bugger. And I had the same problem. I guess one of the things I really like about this radio is I can talk about my experience because I'm pretty late in the game. As I, even though I was into the wildlife as a kid, I wasn't keeping them in captivity for very long or mm-hmm. with the, trying to learn the husbandry and all that stuff. So I've got that perspective of, I was a total noob. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm a molecular biologist. <laughs> I work with RNA and DNA and that stuff and, 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 and polyamines. Yeah. So, you know, that everyday stuff. And so coming in is, and, and that's one of the things that I, that's where we started working together was because you're a field biologist and I have the molecular biology background and it's just two totally different fields. Oh. Right? We don't even speak the same language in peer review journal articles. No, 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 like no, no. Totally different language between <laughs> yours and mine. It is. <laughs> And, and I can hold a pipette and not crush it in my hand, and you can jump three feet onto a snake and catch it. I mm-hmm. probably can't. Yeah, so. that's about right. <laughs> so. Stop breaking the Eppendorf pipettes. Mm-hmm. So I, I was—I've always been in that that DNA, RNA, you know, the stuff that you hear about in the classic uh, kind of the high school biology, that stuff. You know, I was not a field person. It was just a roommate. It really was just a roommate that said, "These are cool. We should get one." And, and so I did. So I picked up that Florida king snake. And the first problem I had with it was it did great at eight. It was doing well. And what do you think happened to the snake? Well, the same thing that happens to most people when they own their first snake. It escapes. Mm-hmm. Because I went to a reptile show and I picked up some random cage that he told me to buy. 
I pulled a heat pad. That's that's all. You know, it was actually a glass tank with one of those yeah. lids. And does the lid wasn't sitting on there properly. It was enough that the snake got out. Gotcha. And um, so my very first snake, uh, I did find it eventually when I kept smelling this awful smell from behind my entertainment system. And I, I took that thing apart. I took that entertainment system apart. And then behind it, it's like, it's like, it's coming from the wall. And, and, so we actually managed to, we took off the, uh, there was an electrical socket there and we took that panel off and we're like, uh. so that's what happened to my first snake. And so, you know, one of the things that we, we take that for granted because a lot of us have figured out that these things are escape artists, but for somebody new, that's like the first challenge you have to do when owning oh. a, owning a king snake is make sure it doesn't escape. And it seems so trivial, but if you if you look on like the corn snake groups and the king snake groups on Facebook, every week we see at least five posts. My snake escaped. How do I find it? And and that's something I think as a community we really need to work on is working on that kind of security because it doesn't mm-hmm. look good for us. It upsets everybody, and then we get people that go on the internet and bully them. How did you let your snake escape? Blah blah blah. And and we don't want that kind of behavior. We want to encourage people to just. Yes, I made a mistake, and you know, I've come a long way since yeah. since since that. <laughs> now I've got you know. Then I ended up with eighty something of them. Yeah, yeah, and, and then you produce quite a few. So fast yeah. forward to just this past year, yeah. how many animals do you think that you've produced? Um, that actually. Uh, definitely somewhere between 150, 200, something like that. Yeah. Uh, not counting the ones that you have over there. Right mm-hmm. now. <laughs> and then, so the luck of the, yeah. So in an effort to, one of the things that I love about Jen is we are at West Liberty. We have the, the animal. So I spent the first six years of the Zeus I major. I talk about all the time. And that was basically building the collection of animals that the students were going to learn how to take, how to do herpetoculture with. Um, we needed to have diversity so that we could actually do some projects where we could compare pythons to colubrids to dipsadids, so on and so forth. But I was I was looking for a colony of animals that would basically be mine. Once you get the community lab set up as a researcher, I want my own animals that basically I take care of and one other student, and that's it. And I was talking with Jen, and she graciously donated quite a few adult Florida king snakes, and um, if you all saw the photograph that I put up online on my Instagram account, that basically said this is my favorite room on campus, the purple and yellow room. The king snakes that are in there are Jen's and I's, and it's basically a communal colony between her and I for research projects that we're going to do. So, uh, with that being said, that's your your intro to snakes. You have the Florida kings. We'll talk about Florida kings in one minute, but I do want the audience to kind of know just briefly what's your academic background because matt and i both were kind of in organismal biology (laughs) we had matt did the physiology i did ecology and you're biologists like us but what's the background for you (laughs) well that's just that's just the thing i'm not a biologist like you you're (laughs) one of those people that goes out into the field and jumps on things and i go field herping twice a year for fun Mm -hmm. um so uh, I'm the person that works with the DNA, the RNA, the protein, the, the really 
the stuff that sounds a lot like COVID, infectious disease, bacteria, mm-hmm. all those scary science words that sounds like science fiction. You know, that's that's the kind of stuff I do. So I guess my degree was called molecular and microbiology. And then um, they changed the name to biomedical sciences just to make it sound sexier for some reason. Um, but I work a lot on the molecular side. You know, a lot of people have questions for me, like, is PCR real? And a lot of that comes from COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, is it real? Yes, it's real. Yes, it's an industry standard. We use it in all the hospitals. <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot of stuff. And I understand because I don't feel like, and this is why we do the podcast, is the, the general public doesn't get to see the background and the science sometimes. So they really question what's going on. Is this real? Is this just made up from Russia? What is it? You know, mm-hmm. is COVID real? Is it a real virus? You know, and there's um, trying to to breach that connect between the communities. I think it's important we do that, especially because we have a lot of people that are very knowledgeable with the animals they work with. And just because they don't have a doctorate in front of their name doesn't mean that they don't contribute, mm-hmm. but we don't have it formal. And I think that's one of the things you've been working with more and more um, people that don't have those degrees, but they've spent 10 years out in the field and they can, they know exactly where these animals are and, yep. and they know better than the people in some of the research labs because they just don't get a chance to get out there as much as they do. So with experience, you can't just say just because somebody has those letters in front of their name, they know more. They, they probably know more about what they specifically study than you, but that's th- to the extent where that goes. Yep. You know, it's like very limited to your very narrow uh, research. Yeah, your, your little so, narrow window of all Narrow your window. So that's Jan- why you're the, the king of the crayfish, because uh, <laughs> there's pretty much no one else in the world that's well-renowned for crayfish. Yeah. So, Jen, yeah. How did, what brought you into that field of science, if you will? Was that something you just kind of fell into? Was it something that, you know, you were looking for that sexy keyword to really, like, set yourself <laughs> off in the academic world? or? You know, what's funny is that I, I really loved all the animal biology stuff, but my, my parents were very concerned about me. They said, you can't become a biologist because it doesn't make any money. <laughs> that is, that's what my parents told me. They're like, you can do that for fun, but you're not allowed to be a, a, a biologist. You're not allowed to be a marine biologist. You're not, you're not allowed to do any of that because you'll never make any money. Boy, are they disappointed with my PhD. So, um, <laughs> that doesn't make any money either, but... Um, you know, so uh, it's I just kind of fell in love with all the the, the micro stuff. Uh, so as I, I my dream when I was a senior in high school was to work on the Human Genome Project. And then but when I got to college, it, it was already completed two years early. So I didn't get to work on it. Yeah, and, and- that was that was my life goal at the time. I had to put I put the toads aside for a little bit. I was still bringing them in. Mm-hmm. And I was still doing things like that. But I think, you know, just growing up and going to college, your your mind, you, you get focused on what you need to do to be an adult. And so you have to put some of your toys down for a little bit. And that yeah. is a sacrifice you have to make in order to succeed. And then there's me who went back to it in grad school because I needed those toys or okay, snakes are not toys, but fun things. Yeah, I, I needed that. The snakes probably are emotionally they were my most emotional support animals to get through the rest of my graduate school and that disaster yeah so uh, so i had like 12 of them i think by the time i graduated with my phd but i really didn't get to do a whole lot with that after until afterwards before it was just 
just like every other noob, you got to start somewhere with the husbandry. And there isn't like you don't go to there is no college course, Snake Husbandry 101. Maybe you have one there that you <laughs> teach, but we don't have that. So I had to figure it out with with just the roommate, you know, based on what he said. And I did a lot of trial and error. And of course, that would be unnecessary now that we have all these Facebook groups. I don't think Facebook was really a thing back then. We couldn't share all that information that we had with our peers. And I think that's, we really are making a lot of progress on the educational front and how we keep animals and what we can do to protect ourselves and protect the animals. You know, there's, we'll we'll get it. I guess let's pull that out for the disease a little bit, but you know, fortunately snakes are not generally very zoonotic. They don't, tend to bring in a lot of stuff that's going to make us sick unless you're picking it from another country where they've got um, like blood flukes and things like that. And uh, that's a big nope for me. <laughs> yeah. And to get the blood flukes, you kind of yeah. have to decide to eat your snake, which is hopefully not <laughs> something people do, but you could potentially get a, get something from the, you forget the to wash your hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You so. forget to wash your hands and you, you know, lick your hands or what you decide to eat some chicken wings. And that's what freaked me out when I saw those, the, 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 the lung worms. And that's yeah. another story from another day. <laughs> so final question before we move into the, the, the meat and potatoes with the disease and vectors and mm-hmm. such um, at what? So, so one of the things that I, I have enjoyed talking to you about is everybody, most people know, I'm not necessarily what you would call a morph person. I don't do morphs. I I did not do well in my genetics class. I did better in my evolution classes. And then I look at the paint jobs and the phenotypes and I kind of like, I can't keep track of what the hell I'm looking at. And then I talk to to Jen about this stuff and she just, bam, rattles it off and, and talks about this cross and that cross will equal this and this and this and this. So I know that's an important part to you in your herpetocultural career. So at what point did you kind of realize, A, that the morphs existed and that you could breed them and then kind of take your collection to another level from your 12 snakes to the 100-plus snakes I inherited from you a couple months ago? <laughs> so so that was that was the problem right there was it – it became kind of a, what, what got me into the king snakes was that there were different morphs and they were colorful. Uh, you know, the ball pythons, if that's your thing, I just couldn't get into that. Um, but I just really fell in love with the king snakes and that, that roommates had either get a king or a corn snake. And I, I, in that, with him teaching me and some other people talking to people at the shows, I just, I was like, wait a second these really all are the same snake. I thought there were like 30, you know, 30,000 species of snakes at this uh, (laughs) reptile shows. When I first walked into one, I had no clue. I was like, are these different species, different genuses? What are they? You know? And you start to actually sit down and look at them and you're like, well, they look the same for the most part, just something slightly different about them. And it was kind of that, that realization, you know, first I had, you know, first I had a hypo and then I had an azanthic and, so it was just like, cool, you can collect them all, <laughs> like Pokemon. And it's like, well, and, and the g- genetics part was what attracted me to it was that, you know, you could make all these different morphs. 
Mm-hmm. And I I had never planned on being a breeder, but but the breeders all talked me up. They're like, well, you could make this and this and that. And I was like, well, I'll raise them up and then maybe you can breed them. And that's what my thinking was at the time. I'll raise them up and you can do whatever it is you have to do to get them to breed. And then and I'll I'll make the genetics project. But I had no intent on breeding when I when I got these. Um, and so I just start I had a collection. I had ideas of what to breed and how to make something really cool. But because of my background with the genetics and, and the RNA and DNA, that's mm-hmm. what kind of got me. That's what got me hooked was was the genetics, the fact that I could that these were morphs and that this this mental stuff, this Punnett square stuff, which, by the way, is not going to make you have to do one. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so this stuff really works. <laughs> this, this stuff Mendel's talking about with peas and pea plants and all this and flies. It really works. It's not just something we learned in our book that Pearson tortures us with. Yeah, it's um, it's. It's it's real, and and it, not only is it real, it's something that you uh, you're doing it old fashioned way. You know, now we can genetically sequence things and cheat and do things like that, but there's just something about having to do it the way they did it in you know yeah. the 1800s. It's like how they used to have to do it, and you gotta like there's something fun about that. It's just it's like doing a Stone Age thing, and it's fun. Uh, so it just. It's nerdy. I get it. it mm-hmm. Not everybody's into the morphs. Clearly, there's a. I didn't know there was a world full of geneticists out there, but when you run into all these ball python people and corn snake people, etc., it's a big thing. They love the genetics. They just don't know how to call it the right thing because they didn't weren't they didn't take a biology class, but they understand the mechanism and how it works. Yeah. No. And I, and I do have to admit when when I've never how do I say this? I've read about the morphs. And I've had a, like I like hypos. Whenever anything has a hypo, I'm probably going to like it. But but other than that, I'm, I have a tendency not to gravitate towards anything. And then these these king snakes showed up, and you sent the spreadsheet. And um, I'm still going to be a locale guy and all that. But I will fully admit that I that it's been great for me to actually learn this terminology and language of the morph world. Uh, with this collection that I have, because I, I'll pull open the tub to go clean somebody, and I, I look at this thing, and I'm just like, "Good God, you're you're crazy looking." And before, I would just be like, "It's pink." <laughs> That's the extent of my knowledge. And now I can look at the spreadsheet and be like, "Oh, okay. You know, this one's tyranase positive, tyranase negative. This one's um, you know, uh, xanthic or double het something something." And it's been kind of fun. To just on my own try to I quiz myself with the morphs the way I quiz myself when I'm in the field and I'm trying to learn like a new family of bugs so I'll, I'll look and be like alright which species is this which species is that you just take out species put in morph but I've, I've gotten to the point where there's still animals I've fed multiple times now quite a few times now and I, I, I still can't remember what the hell morph they are or phenotype and then they go to the spreadsheet it's on my phone um, but yeah no so no, but it's it's interesting to to hear. Like this is kind of one of the the things I, a point I want to make is that we all have different interests. So with you know Archer here, she's into the genetics and the mechanism and you know of of inheritance and all that. So it makes total sense that morphs and phenotypes and things would would be her jam. Whereas Mister Ecology here, I look at a locale and I'm like, oh, this Pinellas King versus this Sand King versus this. Brookside, which is not valid anymore, but at the same time, they're a different phenotype. I'm into that because I know that that's a phenotypic response to the habitats they're living in. So, you know, tomato, tomato, it's, it's kind of the 
kind of the same. So I just wanted to to kind of hit on that a little bit um, and let everybody well, know and, that's how we do it. What, what about hybrids? Are we going to get into that? I hate hybrids. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, yeah, and, I was like, if you're on that side for sure, and then I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, the side of me is yeah. always like, you know, genes do what they want to do. You yeah. know, you get a snake or you don't. I mean, it's the, you know, it's these these arbitrary uh, borders that we assign here, and we can argue about taxonomy all day long. Yep, yep. And taxonomy and taxes, two things that you don't want to bring to uh, mm-hmm. Thanksgiving table. No. <laughs> well, and I think one of the harder parts too is, you know when you start to look at genetics and how you're actually studying genetics and like associating with alleles and how you're actually, you know, there's so much in terms of now let's take shed skins and do this analysis. But I don't think a lot of people realize how much actually goes into that in terms of the fact that that DNA starts to degrade too as well. And those shed skins need to basically essentially be fresh Especially right now, there's a big conversation of can we actually look at different morphs based upon shed skins and collect shed skins. But once you have that shed skin sitting there for several months, it's going to be very complicated. And mm-hmm. your your confidence or R-squared off of that genetic material is going to decrease rapidly, too, as well. Yeah, you want to get the shed and get it out the door. <laughs> Like comes off snake you know, into envelope and there you go. Yeah, that brings me to we do need that. I wanted to have a discussion anyway about proper collection and validation because I, I think there is a big disconnect. And I think COVID really taught us that the general public is not really educated on, you know, health practices and science practices. And so they hear the words like sterile techniques and that doesn't mean anything to them. But we all benefit from it. Because a lot of it translates, and really what it translates to is less disease yes. or better experiment or, you know, and that's in, – and people don't understand why necessarily. You have to follow very strict instructions when you're going to do science. You can't just grab a bag of poop and then swab it with any random swab, and then you've got pine in there, other substrate, and – so it's important that when you design a test, you're always doing it in the same this with the same methodology, the same way, and you've compared it to another valid method to the point where um, you want to make sure you, you know your positives are really positives and your negatives are really negatives. And I get punchy with some of the academic research sometimes because they don't take the time to validate their research methods and then. They're like, well, I sent this specimen to another lab and it's they it was negative here and was positive here. And it's like, well, for one, did they process how did they process the sample? Because it doesn't just you can't just take poop or blood or whatever and just shove it in a thermocycler and expect to see is this disease there? You can't do things like that. It's a yeah. little bit more complicated. And you know, that's why you know, when you talk to your vet, you, you need to get if your vet's going to use a appropriate collection kit, <laughs> they need to. They don't just take a cotton swab and they mail that into no. where, where their lab is. No. Um, so whatever lab you're using, they you know you need to make sure it's going to a validated lab um, and it, that the vet's using and that their vet should know how to properly collect that specimen because it makes a difference what you're using. And so we have people that want to go take COVID tests. They want to drop off the Q-tip. At, it doesn't, you can't trust that data because that, you know, 
they put chemicals in there to degrade the snot basically Mm -hmm. without degrading the DNA. And that's how we can tell whether you have COVID or not. So if you don't collect it correctly and it's negative, that doesn't mean you don't have COVID. It just means we couldn't detect it because it was contaminated. So these are things that everyday people don't really think about. They're just like, there's DNA in me, right? So I can detect it. But (laughs) I I feel like a broken record after working in a hospital and (laughs) talking about CLIA and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, But it is very important that, you know, I know that there's independent labs. I know there's there's research labs, but you you know, be careful where you're sending your your stuff to, making sure that um, they are. Ch- always ask if they they validated their method. That's the first thing to ask, and the second all is you know, make sure they have the right. Usually, the way we work in in any healthcare environment or sciences, everything comes in kits. Yep. You guys, you guys do some, you did some uh, DNA work. You just bought a kit, kit mm-hmm. and a protocol. It's where we joke. I have a little funny YouTube thing about that. So you buy the uh, Kyogen kit and, you know, you just follow the protocol and it works because mm-hmm. it does it the same way every time. And that's, that's a validated method that you're using. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up a little bit sure. because I get somebody keep, people keep trying to give me poop samples to look at. And I'm like, I can't take a week old poop sample in a bag with substrate in it. And you want me to see something on the microscope. I can't, well, I can't do that. Well, let's talk about why people are giving you poop sample. <laughs> That's my segue. So yeah. both. So before we, we go any further, uh, we are going to start a, a, a discussion about crypto. Uh, in Colubrid Collections, I probably said crypto, and at least one listener had a a cold, sh- a cold shiver go down their spine. Um, crypto is without question in the Colubrid world kind of our NIDO or uh, Serpentivirus or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and one of, one of the things that's happened is both Jen and I independently have dealt with crypto in our collections, and what was – interesting about our approach is we didn't do what a lot of people do, which is you find out you have crypto, you then go purchase the cheapest blowtorch you can find and then kill everything, start over. We decided to do some science with this. And it's led both Jen and I to have a very different opinion of how to treat it, how to act around it, how to handle it. Uh, and I'm going to say for I'm keeping track. This is the third time I've said this. This is based <laughs> off our observations and not a veterinarian. So go to your vet. If your vet tells you something, listen to the vet, not us. But I'd like to everybody. Most people that have listened to this have listened to another podcast I'm on and they've heard my experience. So we don't need to go over that. But do you mind just kind of explaining how you your first interaction with crypto inside your collection and and your response to it before we talk and, about the, the vector stuff. And before we get into that, I just rem- want to remind everyone that you have 11% rebate from Menards and they do have blow torches <laughs> there too, as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you go that route, there you go. Go pick yourself up a blow torch. Uh, just trying to put some humor <laughs> in this conversation. Yeah. So when, it, when and how and why did crypto enter your life? <laughs> you know, when you work in a hospital, that's a don't ask that question yeah, no. there because it's actually a human disease. A lot of people don't realize they associate crypto with most of you probably uh, associate that word now with currency. But uh, you <laughs> might, if you're a colubrid person, you might associate that with uh, 
you know, the deadliest thing in your collection. And, you know, I, I had no idea anything about that, but, you know, I, you know, I was pretty small time and, uh, at the time and, uh, what I heard from everybody, you know, was, I had rumors about it. This is just this, this thing. And most people said it was a bacteria uh-huh. <laughs> and it just comes into your collection and it just kills it. It's dead in like a week. And, 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 and that does happen to people, but that's not cryptosporidium. But, you know, and I can argue, if you tell people that, um, that it doesn't do that, they'll disagree with you, even though they don't really have the science to back it. But cryptosporidium is not, uh, it, that's not one of the symptoms of crypto is that your collection just randomly drops dead. Um, and that's going to be something more on the viral side mm-hmm. um, and not... Or it could be uh, a respiratory infection, something that, you know, I, I had a bout of a few animals died because, this, you know, I'm not always, I'm a smart person and I don't always think when I'm half asleep. And I, I made a mistake of taking an air filter. I had an air purifier. I became like deadly allergic to mold <laughs> at one point in my life and I'm doing a lot better now. But uh, so I used that to to deal with the moisture and I picked up all those spores and then mm-hmm. I forgot to change the filter thinking I had changed the filter and completely forgot dirty filter was in there. And I had it in the room right next to a bunch of snakes and a bunch of them dropped dead all of a sudden it, with respiratory issues. So you got to be careful with just, these are things you don't even think about. Yeah. All I did was put an air purifier in the room and I was sick. I was very sick from it. Mm-hmm. I almost went to the hospital that night because I was so allergic to it. But, you know, animals can have allergies and they can and these toxins in the mold spores. So it's a Florida problem in general with the, you know, those, that's and I bring that up because sometimes it gets too humid. And that's one of the things you can have in your a husbandry issue is when your humidity goes too high, you start running into respiratory issues and it can be bacterial. It can be fungal. And the fungal stuff is nearly impossible to treat. Yeah. You know, they've just got to be able to fight it off on their own. So with the. With crypto, though, what, what made yeah. you think, crap, these things have crypto? Like, what were the animals doing? Um, so, so, so I, I, the biggest stressor, I guess, is moving them. And, it, you know, I've moved so many times and God knows how long. And I moved and just the animals started regurging, but I didn't really think anything of it because I knew they were stressed out from the travel. And that happens to a lot of animals in this I had like only a few of them in the same rack were doing it or the ones next to it. So most of it wasn't doing that. And um, these were um, not, they weren't adults. They were probably, I'd like to say fuzzy eaters. (laughs) So they fuzzy mice that that size. (laughs) That's how I, that's how I compare snake sizes is by what food size they eat. I like that. So I've got my fuzzy eaters and um, everything was bigger than them. And only these smaller snakes, and it wasn't all of them, they regurged and they just weren't keeping, they just couldn't keep food down. And I kept throwing Nutra back at them and things like that. You know, and I finally went to my vet, one of my vets, I have multiple, and, and, you know, he did a wet prep and, you know, he said it's a protozoan, there's there's a protozoan in here, but he couldn't identify it. And he said, crypto is a possibility. And I'm like, how could it be crypto? Isn't it that thing that wipes out collections? Mm-hmm. Why aren't all my other animals regurging? 
And we know that regurging is just something that can happen anyway from poor husbandry, especially with, with temperature shock. And I've got stories about that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think the most detrimental thing I've ever happened happened to me is temperature shocks that have just knocked out a bunch of animals. Like the when I lost the wine cooler mm-hmm. last year, it, you know, these things are going to happen. And you sit there and put all of the – you put – temperature sensors on them and everything and try to control for these things. And it's, it's never perfect. We've had a lot of big players lose animals due to failed thermostats and things like that. Large collections. So it's, you know, like, but I, I'm, I'm trying to get to the point that don't be discouraged because things are going to happen that are unpleasant where you yep. may lose a bunch of animals because that, that just happens. And it's, it could be, whether it be from disease or bad husbandry or, a flood, whatever, whatever it may be, this is something that you have to be comfortable with, with loss when you're working with animals, because they're, that's, and, and I think, so it's not for everybody. If you can't handle an animal getting sick and needing to go to the vet, it's not for you, but, you know, we try to encourage you keep going, you know, we, you, you haven't succeeded until you failed 10 times. That's generally how that works. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, and, and, and Jen, just to make a comment off of that, I mean, having been in this industry for the time that I've been in, I mean, one of the biggest commentaries that I would have to add to this is when you work with life, you work with death. Yeah, um, you have to. Right. But also to that nature and factor is I think one of the very interesting parts of this hobby is just the friendships and bonds that you build over time, too, as well. Yeah. And with that being said, you know, sometimes when you're working with these aspects and, and trying to overcome some of those um, obstacles, you know, it, it's very interesting in terms of the supportiveness that the hobby brings, especially mm-hmm. those connections that you have, because usually everyone wants everyone to succeed. Everyone wants everyone to have a, a good experience, if you will, um, because there's more to monetary gain in this hobby respective of that. And I think that's something in terms of, you know, being a responsible keeper, but also, you know, when we're working with people that we trust, you know, it's one of those aspects. And I think it makes the hobby much more stronger too as well, because when we look at it as an overall community, we want to make sure that we have people that are helping and aiding others success with it. Because to me, you know, as a, and maybe this is the wrong word, but I would, consider myself not only just a hobbyist, but I do consider myself a commercial breeder too at this point in time. Um, and with that being said, you know, I always want people to buy animals for me to have success in it. I mean, the coolest thing that I see is when people post pictures and they're like eggs hatching, um, Matt Moe's Sarpamitra line. And I think that's awesome. I think that's very cool because it shows that that person took the time and care to actually raise that animal up from a hatchling to an adult and reproduce that animal in captivity. It's not the aspect that they're naming me in it, but I think it's very cool to see that they took the time to grow, raise the animal, took the captive husbandry aspects of it too, and really succeeded in it. Yep. That's awesome. No, agree a hundred percent. So with, with your, um, so you got these animals regurging. Yeah. And, and, and did they and crash the has, or, or, or at what point, how did we get to ultimately determining it's crypto? Um, so I had met, uh, Dr. Lytle over at RAL 
and uh, about the year before, and I saved his business card and a swab. <laughs> and so when my vet had no idea what it was that he was dealing with, I just sent the swab in and, and checked it, and it came back positive. So at that point, I didn't really know what to do, but I knew something wasn't right because all the other animals of larger size, not a single one of them had a problem. They were eating just fine. There was nothing unusual about them. There was just, everything was fine, you know? So it's like, is this really what everybody thinks it is then? Because if, if everything's supposed to drop dead, one, why aren't they dropping dead? Because they did die eventually. Mm-hmm. But I kept nursing them with, Nutri-Back and all sorts of fluids and things. And they lived for quite a while, but eventually they died from emaciation. They just become so, uh, they lose all their muscle mass and they eventually get dehydrated if you don't keep enough fluids in them, which is, you got to kind of force fluids and they'll eventually succumb because they can't absorb, they can't absorb anything. And I had had the veterinarian do a dissection so he could confirm it as well. So, again, as scientists, we don't just say to one test. We had a vet confirm there was a protozoan there in a, in a wet mount, but he wasn't sure what it was. Um, you know, and, of course, back then I was more I was more on the molecular side of things. I really hadn't gotten to work with, uh, done a lot of microscopy. I did a lot of microscopy with cells, but I had never really done it with the, kind of the hospital way and kind of, um, because I got into what I, I switched over to becoming a technologist instead of a research scientist, um, I was able to learn all those techniques pretty quickly. And I was like, wow, this is way easier than research. Why was I over in research this whole time? <laughs> and, yeah. You know, this is, this is pretty standardized stuff, uh, you know. So, yeah, I can stain for it. And it lights up like I've sent you some pictures yeah. of some controls and a, a dead corn snake that I was – that I intend – that I, I – I have to be careful what I say in here. Um, you know, I, I put a corn snake in a room to see how long it would take to become infected when I had those animals, and I was trying to nurse them back to health, and just to see how long it would take for that. To, I actually had two of them, and one escaped, and I still never found it. <laughs> Speaking of the escape hey, artistry. It's t- hey, Jen, just for clarification, too, off yeah. the swabs, I would imagine you're talking about a fecal swab. Versus... Yeah, so you can you can do a fecal swab uh, with the right type of swab, by the way, not a cotton swab. No. A flock swab is usually yeah. Like, speaking of proper specimens, you know, uh, talk discuss with your vet what the proper specimen is if you're going to collect an at home sample instead of it there. But I had my vet collect the sample because you can swab the actual gut. You can also do a gut wash. There's there's things you can do. So when he dissected it, I had him actually collect that specimen, and I sent that one in. I sent that one over to RAL, and it, it, it also told me the species of it, too. It was yeah. Serpentis there. Well, and, and, and that's something I wanted to bring up, too, as well, because having done a lot with Purdue University and their veterinary yeah. students, um, I have had students come over, and I've showed them how to do certain things of that nature, too, as well. Um, because I think it is very important for, you know, veterinary students to actually learn those techniques because, you know, there is more than one way to do this sampling, but I think there also is an aspect of, you know, you could get a false positive off a fecal sample. Um, and you know, you almost need that aspect where you might have more than one testing criteria for this. 
Are you talking about the sandwich assay? Yeah. Okay, so let me let me give some background for the, the non-science folks. I'm going to try to be as late as possible. There's three basic ways you can check for cryptosporidium uh, that, that are sensitive enough to say that's what it is. Um, so you've got PCR. That's the one everybody hears about now because of COVID. <laughs> and uh, so that's it's very difficult to get a false positive from that. If you're getting a false positive, that's usually due to contamination of some sort. So if you sent me 10 samples and you didn't wash your hands and you dumped it, the crypto in one in the clean sample, well, you're going to pull that out because it sees whatever you put in that specimen. So it's not that you can't get false positives, but there, you can get if, if you don't, you know, you're, you don't have a sensitive enough design and your assay is not well enough. You can get false negatives, though. Mm-hmm. And that's generally that's when you when you stop using when you start doing these research labs that haven't validated and they can't tell you their sensitivity data, it's very questionable whether you truly have a negative or not. So uh, that's why I, I, I get, um, I've getting on arguments, seen me online saying, you can't use that lab. It's not validated. And I, and I, and I get on that case about it. Um, But so that's, that's, that method, uh, you know, you're actually directly detecting the DNA and, um, so in, in crypto is a rock. So mm-hmm. you have to develop a method. You can't remember we were having that conversation about how you kept not picking up the crypto, but it's there. And I said, yeah, it's there, but something's wrong with your, I think you're losing your DNA when you're purifying it for one, because you've got too small an amount. And then you have to be able to put the right, you have to digest the crypto almost to get the DNA out of it. And it, that's the best way I can describe it. So there's a lot of processing that goes backstage and involved in the design for these tests. And because it's really boring, we don't generally talk about it with the no. general public. It, exactly. But just know that it's not just, we don't just throw a specimen and a thermocycler and it works. There's a lot of work that goes into designing the assay from the step of the collection, what you use to collect it, what you use to purify it, what you use, if you're even purifying it, what you use to detect it. And so and including the design of the primers themselves. Uh, so that's a, a so PCR is kind of the gold standard in the field, and what and, and that's species specific. Uh, microscopy, the, the classic way of looking for that is actually doing an acid fast stand, which I took upon myself to learn. And those are those pretty images that you see. Why my vet didn't know how to do that, I'm not sure. I don't know what they learn in veterinary school, but. So he knew something was there by just looking at it in the wet mount, but you can't really identify it as crypto. Just you can see there's a protozoa on there. You can't identify it as crypto. Um, so all all of the that particular um, type of organism. So crypto. There's a few others that you can acid fast stain them, and and you can tell by the structures that's what it is. But you can't tell the species apart whatsoever. No. Uh, there's no way to tell that apart in the microscope. It all looks the same. You can't tell if this is tortoise crypto from human crypto. You just can't. Um, so you have that downside. Uh, but you can see it. You can know if it's there. You know, there's no question. There's no false positive. It's, it, it's there. But you can't tell the species. And I, I, the reason we started talking was because we actually had the other method that was being used in the zoos was they were using the sandwich assays. <laughs> So now I'm getting hungry. Um, and and uh, so these assays rely on you have um, uh, there, there's a couple of different ways to do them. But generally, you're you have um, something you're trying to detect. That's a protein. That's that's a physical part of the organism. 
and then you throw an antibody on it, and, and if it lights up, it's there. The only problem with that is that the, the, these, these sandwich assays also non-discriminately pick up all forms of cryptosporidium. And so I think we were looking at, you know, rodents often get cryptosporidium. There's been outbreaks of cryptosporidium parvum, which doesn't doesn't affect reptiles whatsoever because it's species specific. And then uh, so, you know, snakes eat rodents. Well, you can, you know, PCR can tell the difference. But these these sandwich assays that they're using in zoos were picking up cryptosporidium parvum potentially. And now they're. And no one really knows what to do with the animals. And they started euthanizing them for no reason. And we said, this needs to stop because this is not, you know, there's a disconnect between the zoology world and, you know, the, what I do, yeah. essentially, working with in the microscope and working with molecular techniques and, and these assays. So we know it's not specific. So how many animals have we fried for no reason? because they were guilty of having cryptosporidium serpentis and they did not. And then the other question is, is even if they had that, why did we need to fry it in the first place? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So when, <laughs> when I had the crypto outbreak, I wanted a quick down and dirty test to test the whole collection. Uh, and at first I thought I had my Eureka moment. So I stumbled onto the acid fast staining and, and we had a, a previous guest, Chad Foos, who talked about how one of the most important pieces of equipment he has for maintaining his collection is a microscope. And uh, he uses the microscope to look at sperm motility. Uh, but as we're going to learn with, with Jen here right now, and then when we get to the worms, everybody can get a microscope and play around with the microscope. You can buy them on Amazon. I just bought one for my kid last year. That is better than the, the microscopes I had in high school, by the way. Uh, but we learned really quick at West Liberty that you could do this acid fat staining. And, and that's one of the things that Jen has done intensively with her collection at post this initiation of I have crypto is you can just do a quick screen with an acid fast test. I don't know if you can buy acid fast stains. Oh, like as a layman or I, I guess you can. I got two I, people shaking heads at me. So. I would not recommend it. I'm not going to say you can, but, um, but, but there, and and you, and you do need to have a little bit of technique there on good protocol. So it's something that you can learn as like, if you want to take the time to learn it, you can, uh, as I, but you know, again, it's, you know, and this is going back to using techniques is that I'm trained in sterile techniques and other things, uh, and disposal and not the average person is, you know, you can get some educational kit size things, but you really don't want to put these chemicals and things in your house. You know, they're still not. Yeah. You don't want them. You don't want them near your dogs. <laughs> yeah, or I mean, your kids. like I think that xylene's involved therein, and you got to be a little careful. Yeah, with stuff I, like that. You know, these things were meant to be used in a lab, not mm-hmm. in your kitchen. Even though my kitchen island, there's a microscope yeah. on it. And, but if you <laughs> have thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars invested in a collection, it's probably worth being able to help help your vet out a little bit. Uh, and the nice thing about this is you can actually see the damn organism if you have an oil immersion objective. And that's what was yeah, and, and, interesting and you can, to me. And you can do it, um, you know, and then you might want to verify your species as yeah. well. Um, 
you know, please don't just mail slides to random labs no. too, because the dye, by the way, inhibits the reaction. It has to be worked up. And, well, well, that and, you, and you, some you, of you are all going to run to the labs tomorrow and they're all going to come back to me and say like, why'd you tell us, <laughs> why'd you tell us to send slides in, Jen? And I was like, I didn't, I swear. You can't uh, it's look. doable, but they, they'd have to develop yeah. a, a way to do that uh, more practically, you know, because again, you're switching your sample specimen. So... That was actually the first time that happened, and I said my positive control is uh, is negative. My PCR, it's like that dye is in the way, and we have to deal with it now. So yep. it's there was no protocol set up for it. We had to come up with come up with it on the spot of how we were going to clean up that slide so we could, and then compare the methods. Up, you know, and then we we actually validated it against the PCR, and we were able to show that you know our negative slides were negative and our positives were positive. So, so you're, you're still going to get some sensitivity issues with the microscopy. It's still not as sensitive as the PCR no. because, the, but it's, you know, if it's there, it's, it's definitely there. Yeah. So, so when know, it, pros and cons to all the methods and, um, yeah. So just to be like a, obsolete this point, <laughs> just to be a devil's advocate on this yeah. one. Um, obviously I'm not associated with a university, but having worked on a PhD and, mm-hmm was trained as an anatomist and did a lot of work as in histology. Yes, you okay. can't you can buy all of these chemicals. <laughs> you, you can buy good microscopes um, that are valuable for this type of work. But the problem is, and this is 100% at the very beginning of this show that we talked about, is you need to make sure that you have a veterinarian yep. review all of this. And I say that because of the fact that while I know what I'm looking at, and everyone on this episode that we're, you know, obviously we have three people on here talking. The problem comes is, and in the community, this is very heavily seen, is people treat things improperly. And 100%. you need to have a veterinarian yes, review and, and items. And there are treatments coming out for cryptosporidium. There is, Zach, you've looked in the literature. I know you're involved with some of it. And I know some other things coming out. So it's not... You know, one of the takeaway messages I do want people to have from this is one, if you get it, most people have had it in their collection and they, a lot of them don't even know it. Yeah, 100%. And it may be gone. So yeah. and, and that's the, one thing, one point. Don't freak out because you've got something in your collection. Everybody does. And if they don't, they're lying. Correct. <laughs> right. And, you know, and, and Jen, and, off of and that. I know it's a, been a taboo subject forever. And I said, I will break the ice on it, you know. Yeah. And, and one of those. We'll talk about what's that? Oh, I was going to say one of the things more than likely we should review at the very end of this is ethically and morally, what do you do when your collection does test positive for this? Because there have been a lot of people that have done it. Well, you want to talk about it now or you want to just leave it at the end? Let's leave it. We can pull that in. Um, Leave it at the end, maybe. Let's leave it at the end because I've got two more things I want to talk about. Yeah, that works. So the reason why you know, it, I thought that it might – I'm not by any means promoting with the scope and everything that you throw the, the vet to the side and you're going to go rogue and do this on your own because you are – No, you need to work I'm with a vet. That. This is literally – You need to be working with a vet because yeah. it's and, – and the other thing is handling. And, you know, I'm gonna, I want to cover some basic handling things that, you know, just – you know, I worked in an RNA lab for a few years and – RNA is the thing you look at it wrong and it, and it, and it degrades and, and yep. your sample is done with. And, and so you have to be very, very careful of how you move your body and 
sterilization. You mentioned talking about, you know, how you deal with tubs and all that. And there's just a lot of things you don't really think about. What is sterilization? What is clean? What, what do these words mean to us in the community? Because as you mentioned earlier, a lot of think, people think bleach kills everything. It, bleach does not kill cryptosporidium. And, and you don't want to drink it because it'll kill you. It'll kill cancer. <laughs> uh, you know, these, you know, we're trying to, your, your ultimate goal is to get rid of the organism and, and minimize its presence in, in your collection and, and ideally eliminate it. It doesn't have to be zero. Uh, everything in the wild has parasites in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no such thing as a wild animal with zero parasites. There's always something in it. But they manage to survive just fine. And why is that? Well, for one, we they have the entire ecosystem they're in to move about. And they can sit there and bake themselves in the sun in 95 degrees. You know, people are like, you can't keep that snake at that temperature. This is actually, they'll go on a heat mat that's 95 degrees. And that's one of the best ways to help get to fight disease if something shows up. Your vet will tell you, hey, this, this has this. This got this infection. This eye, I've had eye infections. This is you need to put it on a heat mat and let it cook itself. That's how their immune system works. They can't give themselves a fever when we get sick. We get a, we give ourselves a fever, but a snake is is you know considered cold blooded. They're not capable of really doing that to the extent we are. So they have to move to to get where they need to go. And so the way you take care of an animal that's 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 sick, you can't just put it in a in a rack system and be okay with it. You do have to set up set up a medical tub for it with those temperature gradients so that it, and it knows what to do. They have instinct. They just seem to know. Mm-hmm. And, and it works because people have tried it and you put that heat on there and you give them two different heat spots and you put a really hot one and a really cold one and a, and a medium one. You just put this gradients there and they, they seem to know what to do because they're constantly doing this. This is what they do in the wild. They, they change gradients so they can fight disease. Otherwise, it would be perfectly content probably sitting under – king snake would just sit under a log the whole day and just safely not worried about getting eaten by an eagle or something like that. So I mean, it's a world for a snake. So obviously you're, you're trained in sterile technique. We're going to yeah. go back in time. You found yeah, out. I, I, uh, you've, I, I, I made it. I go on. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You, so, you found so, out uh, that, that you've had the crypto – I want to get to the vectors. And so you start asking this question of how is it moving from snake to snake? And so, and so, so one of the things how did a lot you of go people about, do. Uh, well, in your experience, though, like story time, how did you end up figuring out how the crypto was moving through the collection? If you're being hypervigilant, wearing gloves and using all this training, you have working in medical labs not to, to transfer the spores from well, one animal to another. Well, that's part of the problem. I wasn't at yeah. first because I didn't know there was a problem. I mean, yeah. I knew there were some issues in my collection. I could tell by the smell of the poop something was wrong. But most of the stuff that actually I blame crypto on wasn't crypto at all. Crypto was probably the least of my problems with dealing with husbandry. And it was one of those that just everybody blames it. It's just this, everybody likes to witch hunt this organism. And mm-hmm. Not saying it's not an issue, but, but you know, it can be easier to deal with than other things that get into your collection. And you just trying to get rid of stuff is difficult. But, you know, ultimately some things you can do. This is not necessarily veterinary advice, but this is just general husbandry advice. So, for example, a lot of 
breeders will throw breeders hobbyists will throw a rodent in and now it didn't get eaten okay and you can probably you know those rodents the king snakes they can go it's not like us that if it's out of the fridge for four hours we'll probably die from it but they can eat roadkill they can handle a lot of things so but what happens is people take the mouse from one cage and you know they that they spot clean and there's fecal matter in there it's not perfectly clean even though it visually looks clean and then they put the mouse in the next cage where it didn't get eaten because we all know that mice are now cost like a dollar fifty or something outrageous like that a piece and we want to all save money especially when you have a large collection and you've got to start and, and you and you move that one item that has been that's been contaminated essentially with whatever was in that cage and you moved it into another cage now so that's one way we if you want to reduce spread is to just uh, not reuse rodents from one cage to another, because now you've got that on there. And that's something anybody can do. It's a little bit more wasteful, but if you're concerned about something in your collection, that's, that's one of the ways to do it. And then of course, actually cleaning your tubs regularly. So there's no buildup of fecal matter that can house that stuff and let it stay alive in there. And, um, Washing your hands in between each, handling each animal, handling each cage. And I know that's a lot of work, but that's what we do in hospitals. Before we started hand washing, and it doesn't have to be antibacterial soap, by the way, which will do nothing for crypto either, because it's not a bacteria. But just washing your hands with soap and water. Soap is, by nature, it's, it's slippery. And that's what it does, is it just gets rid of everything off of your hands. You don't have to kill it. You just have to make it go away. So I get people that get really crazy with these these disinfectants. And when you're, you're in, in like hard to reach places, I understand it's good to have a good disinfectant. But ultimately, soap and water is should be enough as long as you're scrubbing and doing a good job. And bleach itself is also soapy. You know, it's a base. You can a lot of times I just put all my small tubs in a bleach bath. I just make a get a big polypropylene tub from Walmart and I just soak them in there and you spray it and everything just comes off because you made it slippery and you can add a little soap in there as well. That's another way to do it. And of course, as Zach brought up, UV light will kill essentially anything. But unfortunately, after 10 years of polypropylene sitting out in the Florida UV, my my cages are getting warped from that as well. It's not very kind of plastic either, and I had an escapee as a result of a 10-year-old tub that just got too warped. So that got decommissioned the other day. Well, uh, and, so, and, and off of that even, too, I don't think a lot of people realize that plastic is porous. And, it and, is. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you can you got to be careful what chemicals you put on there, but make sure you're using polypropylene and not polystyrene tubs. <laughs> That's step one, because you will melt your polystyrene if you start throwing many of the common household chemicals in it. Cool. So uh, and I don't want to completely bore you to death with this stuff, but wash your hands between cages. Think of it as imagine there's like a toxic, um, like a toxic dye. And you know, this is like, uh, and it's, you can just use any dye really. And you would see like, how would I get it from not getting to the other cage? That's kind of the mentality you got to think about is how do I not get it from point A to point B? And if you can do that, you can really reduce in your handling passing on infectious disease. If you're breeding it, if you're putting two animals in the same cage, there some people do that. They like to cohab. And then, you know, so when breeding time comes, you know, yep. they, now they're in contact. So these things happen. 
So, so these so are just some of the. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, you know, talking about disinfectant and cleaning. What are your thoughts on using peroxide? Well, that's the standard we've been using is twelve percent peroxide, which is pretty strong, anywhere from six. To, and we're just spraying the heck out of it. But I don't think any of us have actually figured out how effective that is. We know it works, but like how much is, what percent is okay and uh, how many treatments do we need? And really that's just for stuff that when you have those nooks and crannies you want to get into that you can't get otherwise. So, well, and I I think that's important too, to recommend different aspects of cleaners or disinfectants too, because I've always been told ammonia, peroxide, um, but also the exposure to UV. But with the peroxide, it's important that people realize, because I've had people tell me this, you're not going to run out to CVS or Walgreens, no. Walmart, buy peroxide, come in. That peroxide is going to tickle it. It's not going to kill it. Yeah. And what's really interesting is there were some papers that were done out of Europe, and they actually used the term deactivate. And I did a little bit of digging into that, and I talked to our a couple of parasitologists I know. And what's crazy about the cryptosporidium organisms, when they say deactivate, what that literally means is it's just going to stop its ability to replicate. There's not really evidence of biological death. That's how much of a badass this little protozoan is. Uh, So to get the peroxide that does the damage, um, you can absolutely get it on Amazon. Uh, I've said this multiple times on many, many podcasts. You have to wear gloves you have to put, do this in a ventilated space. Um, if you get Please it on your, your PPE, if it gets it gets on your skin, your wherever it hits is going to turn white and flake away, uh, yes. and it hurts. Like you will, yes. It's a slow burn when it gets on you. You don't realize it's there, and then you kind of like ouch, 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 and then next thing you know, you look down, and then there's the white. And I am absolutely speaking from personal um, experience because. Uh, on, on several occasions, it's gotten just past the lip of the gloves I'm wearing or something like that. Uh, oh, yeah, I, it sucks. It's not yeah. fun. <laughs> um, and it's – it's. I get four gallons of it for about 100 bucks, so it's $25 a gallon. And that's at the 12%. I think it's uh, cleaning grade is what you want. Um, but what I, I'd like to switch topics just a little bit um, and just okay. go straight for it this time. Let's talk about flies uh, because everybody that has a lot of snakes, especially if you have racks, um, it seems like inevitably you will get what you perceive to be fruit flies that come into your collection. And a little bit of entomology goes a long way because you could absolutely have Drosophila in there. I'm not going to say you wouldn't. There's yeasts in there. They're, in, they're attracted to the yeast. But if your little fruit flies are running around like maniacs and they don't want to fly that much and you look down in the bedding and there's flies running, running, they'll fly. They're flies. But running amongst the bedding, especially around the feces, um, you are dealing with our good friends or worst nightmare, you, you choose, uh, forward flies. So I know you've done quite a bit of work with forward flies. So at what point did you realize that these were – that you had fly, like flies could be the vector here. Cause I know that you've gone to great lengths to experiment with ways to keep the flies out of the tubs. So I just like to talk a little bit about the flies. 
Yeah. So, I mean, that was kind of the obvious problem was that, you know, once I knew I had an issue, I had to be more careful with, you know, recycling rodents and things like that and getting this, the techniques down. The problem was, is what can I do? And it wasn't, it wasn't even just flies. I had these uh, soil mice. It turns <laughs> out, you remember me messaging you, what the heck is this? It's not a snake bite. Yeah. I, I don't know what this is, but I want it gone. Mm-hmm. And so arthropods just classically, you know, because remember I did a, most of my work with humans, but a lot of it and, and rodents and E. coli for that matter. But a lot of that actually translates to veterinary science. We, we know what we know about cryptosporidium from what, because it's a problem in humans and it's a problem in livestock. Mm-hmm. You know, your steak is expensive when, when there's about a diarrhea going around with calves. So there's a lot of interest in solving this problem for all species, not just, not just for snakes and not just colubrids. And so you know, uh, I mean, I immediately blamed the fly for that. And, and, and so uh, I think it was, I'm trying to think back now. I said, well, what if we could test the flies and see if they actually test positive for cryptosporidium themselves? We just put a collection together and we just make it concentrated with flies and see what, you know, or, or actually we decided just to keep just a standard collection that gets, I think we decided on what, what, how often does a typical person spot clean and all that and that amount of flies. And, and, and so I sent them over to get PCR tested and, and me and Chad had both been talking about that, about, you know, what, what can we do here? Because you can't just throw flies into a thermocycler either. <laughs> so we had to get creative. And, and now we have these little fly grinder bead, bead grinders, which makes for, uh, again, this is not the talk you can have at Thanksgiving dinner, but you can have, <laughs> with, your, but you can have with your science friends about smashing, uh, smashing flies. So um, they, were, they were being used for another purpose before. And, and now that we, we decided that okay, let's see if we can use the flies and, and clean this up. And so he agreed. If I, I collected, I, I mailed a, a jar full of flies. To, mm-hmm. I wonder what the post office, the people <laughs> that work there, wonder like mm-hmm. if, if these things bust open every, yeah. you know, like they look at it and like, what are they mailing? Mm-hmm. But at least it's going to a lab. So I think they're less concerned about it. Yeah. And, and so the flies themselves were testing positive. At, at the time yes. when I was continuing to work with it because I was like, well, I'm already dealing with this, you know, when I had those, and I want, I tried to save those animals. And so the flies were testing positive because those animals were symptomatic and full blown. They had flow, full blown infection. Um, and uh, so we tested all that, but the curious thing that really shot down the, um, I guess the uh, everybody, the whole belief that crypto instantly kills your whole collection is so not only did it not kill those at all, but why weren't any of the other animals in the room? Uh, why weren't they? Why didn't they have it? And, and I and I tested individual samples from that room as well, and they all came back negative. So. You know, we had to really think about this. What's really going on here? Are they just not getting it because my techniques were too good? Probably not because the room was full of flies and that was designed for that test to begin with. But 
you know, we have this paradigm here that everyone believes this thing. And it's like, why aren't the rest of the snakes that have been isolated in this room and on lockdown? Why are they why aren't they dying? Why aren't they regurging? Why are they eating? And why did they come back negative? Why did they come back negative? Yes. And, and and that's really where we said, you know, it's not necessarily is this really a death sentence? Um, you know, is this thing really as problematic as people think it is? And it, and it is a problem. We're not going to say it's not, but could their own immune systems be fighting it off? I mean, the, when you're dealing with small animals, it takes them time to develop their immune system, which makes sense because the only things that showed symptoms were the, the smaller animals in the collection. They're eating, I think nothing ate larger than a hopper at any point that had symptoms, but everything larger than that was perfectly fine. And I, and I tested it, I think multiple times. And I'm like, is this really the data? This is really what we have. And, and they're negative. So do they fight it off on their own? And, you know, one day, uh, my buddy, John, I, I got really, I got really frustrated with, with this, the snake that ate its sibling. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, usually you don't have to separate king snakes until they until they uh, have shed have gone through their first shed they don't tend to want to eat you know it's you know they usually don't want to eat start eating for at least a week until after shed you know you always have your that, that's the problem with biology biology is messy very you know, messy you might have and, and that's that's the other point that I, I, it's not chemistry chemistry you throw these chemicals and a reaction you put this exact grams and you weigh it and you always get the same result every time but if you take a hundred animals in a room one might have one symptom one regurges one doesn't eat food one of them just has smelly poop but no other symptoms you you don't necessarily get the same uh, expression of disease in every single thing. And I think COVID taught us a lot about that too. Some people will get really sick and can die from it. And other people have no symptoms. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to, you got to train your brain to think that, you know, like a biologist where you don't have, uh, it's not a chemistry at all where you're going to have variants in there. And so you're working with that variance to begin with, but we do, we can, we, we look at trends and so we, we, it is definitely an observation that when, when we have heard about collections going down from cryptosporidium, they're always the small stuff. It was the stuff that didn't have enough time to develop an immune system. And then so this snake, and, and so this, this little king snake, this little jerk that ate his sibling and lived through it, by the way, I just got so mad at that snake. I was like, and, and my friend didn't have time to pick him up. I'm, like, I'm, just, took him, I'm just taking the taking the condom off and I'll go into what that means in a minute. And I just put it there in the crypto room and I'm like, all right, you're the testament to this buddy. So he got it. So he got the snake and, uh, and a a couple months later it started regurging. And so he brought it over and I acid fast stained it. And, and sure enough, it was positive for crypto because I had it with the concentrated fly thing that I, at the, at the time. So, uh, and that snake, uh, you know, and I said, well, I would probably stop feeding it and, and you know, give it fasted for a bit. I don't know what's going to happen, but once they start showing symptoms like that, prognosis seems to be pretty low that it recovers from that. And, and so we checked it like every month and there was still crypto there and this kid insisted on feeding it. And, and then after a few months, I started, he said, 
it doesn't have symptoms anymore. And I started running fecals on it and they kept coming back negative. They kept coming back negative. And, and this animal is, is almost in a, this animal is an adult now. He said, it's been that long. You don't think in your head cause you see it the way it last left as a baby. And I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking of this snake as a baby, but this thing's gotta be an adult now. And, and, I haven't heard any issues with it. It's not regurging. It's not causing any problems. It has zero symptoms. Is the organism still there? Maybe. We don't know. But if it is, it's in an active state. And if it's not shedding cysts and we don't see that in the microscope, chances are, you know, it's not contagious either. It's effectively, you know, and that's been the big dilemma we've had is how do you find it? Could, is it gone once it's gone or is it, can it come back and that, reactivate if it's still there? And that's been the million dollar question. That since. is the million dollar question. And in the academic veterinary world, if you read the the literature, that's what's referred to as an asymptomatic animal. And what all the, the information from necropsies and some of the publications show is that when an animal sheds the spores, and this is, we can, right after this, we can segue to the, whole thing about the scarlet letter your collection has crypto conversation because this is a good segue is that the animals basically become asymptomatic they have the organism in the gut it's living in there um that's been shown that it's extremely difficult to clear this thing from the entire gastrointestinal tract but these adult animals seem to be they go through periods of being symptomatic and then they go asymptomatic and then they go symptomatic and then they go asymptomatic and the major driver surprise surprise is stress so if they become physiologically stressed their immune system drops something in that immune system is what's keeping the crypto at bay and keeping it from um, reproducing both asexually and sexually and then when they start doing that the reproduction piece that's when they start shedding the spores and you start to see the the funky poops, the smelly poops, the liquid poops, and the, and the lumen of the um, stomach thickens up, which leads to the regurgitation. So what I've come to the conclusion with all of this stuff, and this is me, not the veterinarian, listen to the veterinarian, but I've spoken with some veterinarians and they've said the same thing, is that when these animals become asymptomatic, that's when the ethical question comes into play because you know the animal has the spores, there's the possibility that they are shedding spores. But for all intents and purposes, you have a, a snake at this point that is functioning. That individual is functioning as a normal, healthy snake. So what do you do with it? And there's some people that are on the, the very extreme side of things, which say, which say it's got crypto. We need to euthanize it because we don't want the possibility of crypto popping up in our collections. There's other people that have the stance of, well, it's asymptomatic. It's it, it's it, it probably is shedding some spores, but it's, the spore load is so low that it may not be leading to infections. So, you know, we treat it. We mitigate the stress. We keep it safe. We we always say it has crypto, but it's probably not an over, you know, a, a huge detriment to the collection. But ethically, like, what do you do? What do you say? Is, is crypto worth a scarlet letter? I'm going to flat out say my opinion. Maybe not the opinion of the podcast. My opinion is it's not a scarlet letter. I don't think it's right to, you know, whisper. One of the things is when I started going on podcasts talking about crypto, 
you would be amazed at how many people messaged me and said, this guy's got crypto. That guy has crypto. This gal has crypto. This person breeds crypto. And then, you know, the reality of that is I don't think 90% of Calubra keepers know that there's crypto right now in their collection. Because everything that, that I've seen is when we start randomly testing these animals, crypto pops up far more often than it doesn't. And the reason why is that if you look at the data, these animals are asymptomatic is basically what's going on because their care is such that they've reached adulthood. They probably picked crypto up at some point through their life, through their you know life history at that point. And their care is good. So if their care is, being, is good, they're not being stressed. If they're not being stressed, the disease isn't manifesting itself. And I just want you to think about these animals like on Morph Market and Fauna and you go to the reptile show. How many people have them before they ultimately end up unless you take them straight out of the egg? Uh, and they're bouncing between these collections. And each collection, we haven't said it yet, but one of the things that just sucks about this, this, this particular organism is – the number of spores needed to cause an infection is ridiculously low. It's not high at all. Um, and so they get exposed once or twice. There's a chance that you're going to get that spore in there. It's going to bur- burrow into the gastrointestinal tract somewhere. And then it's there in a dormant state for the next 5, 10, 15 years of that animal's life. So I think that we need there needs to be a little bit of a paradigm shift when it comes to how we respond to crypto so i've set it up and we don't there wanna, you go <laughs> we don't want to um scare everybody as well because the other thing is is we which we still haven't been able to disprove is where did the crypto come from in the first place because you know and that's one of the things uh we we wanted to see that that was another thing we wanted to see is now i i'm trying to bring very little into my collection all out of egg for the sake of and get them eating for the sake of this experiment is that, um, you know, is it going to return because it's actually in the wild and it's been there the whole time, mm-hmm. you know, it, nobody's ever disproved that and maybe it's only in certain States. We have, nobody's done the epidemiology on the flow of where it originally came from. Why is it so prevalent? Well, foreign flies are native to Florida. I don't know about where you are, but there's a lot of schmutz that's native to Florida mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be surprised that most of this stuff is just we get the flies into our collections. They come in from outside and eventually, you know, there's a lizard out in your backyard that has it that, that migrated over here and it gave it to your snake. And, and, you know, we talk about lizard crypto and snake crypto. They're two distinct species, but lizard crypto infects snakes yes, and snake crypto infects lizards. It's not they're not really one just generally has a preference and is more likely to kill your animal if it's that species. So we still use that general term, but, but, you know, there's been issues, I think with hog noses has been the big hot key is they, they tend to actually get the, uh, get the other strain, the Varani Mm -hmm. a lot more common, but even ball pythons can get it. They just don't get any, they just, and they can succumb to it with poor husbandry as well. It's just, they're a lot more resistant. That disease is not, you know, again, you're you're dealing with a pop a different animal population, and so a lot of the vectors we also were, were blaming was the ball pythons because everybody's got them, and and they they can potentially be asymptomatic because the, it just doesn't affect them the same way, and they might be shedding. So 
you know, I, I had the monoculture, which gave me a unique advantage to, to sort some things out. But most people, most people that keep large collections don't keep monoculture. They keep a, a mixture of things, you know, and then, you know, that's, that was one of the scary things we talked about was we're like, you know, the Burmese pythons potentially brought in an Asian, an Asian lungworm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a problem because now we have a new pathogen that our native animals don't know how to deal with. Yeah, the pets and, and there are native ones to Florida. And I, I picked up the story behind that was I had given to me a, a wild corn snake with diarrhea, figure it out. And I, and I ran a fecal on that, and I, I actually brought it to my, my, my professor who deals with, um, you know, mostly the human stuff. And she had never seen it before, and neither had I. And it, and it turned out to be this, um, you can't tell the species apart in the microscope, but it was hands down a pentastome, which mm-hmm. is essentially a parasitic crustacean. Think of a killer shrimp that gets in your lung and then slowly kills you. And, and uh, you actually have to go into their lungs and manually remove these things. And they are fecal orally transmitted. So if you were ha- if I was handling that animal, and uh, it's not, you know, as long as you wash your hands and you're being careful, you can avoid these things. But it's not a perfect system because it's very infectious. And you can become infected with that. Actually, it's in, in areas where they eat raw snake in, in some of these Asian countries. That's where all the case studies are from. They're getting yeah. these pentastomes. It's zoonotic, and that just freaked me out. And as much as I love that kind of stuff, once I get to z- zoonotics and I and <laughs> in my not- own home and not and mm-hmm. not in the not in the laboratory with my hood and all my mm-hmm. abilities to keep things sterile like that, it really freaks you out because you've removed all the controls and, and now you're putting yourself at risk. So research needs to be done in a lab, and that's why we're mostly migrating the research over to you now <laughs> because uh, I just don't have the space to do it the way I want to do it or the people to do it either. So it, it's, you have a lot more hands on yeah. and you know, that one experiment I tried to do last year while I had the animals gone didn't work out because of, uh, I was so clean that I couldn't get flies. I couldn't get snakes to infect other snakes. So there's actually the, the, the hopeful part that comes out of that is when you try to get flies to infect your other snakes and prove that it's a vector, I did, you know, and, and I had all the controls and everything, and I, and I just couldn't get the flies to get into that room. I was just so clean that the flies, I just couldn't attract them, and they never came in the room, and I could never get them to test positive. And then one day... it. It's Florida, so we don't usually pay much to the temperature at this time of year, actually further into the into uh, the fall. And then all of a sudden we had our first cold snap and all of my corn snakes that I had bred for that experiment, which your students were supposed to be doing. But I think, yeah, you lost your room or something. and I ended yeah. up taking over the project and I said, this is a bad idea because I'm I, I got a lot of work to do. And sure enough. I wasn't paying attention and it dropped over 10 degrees in that room. And if you know anything about baby corn snakes and temperature shocks like that, and I had just fed them, well, they didn't hold down their, they didn't hold down their meal. (laughs) And, and now I've got the regurge problem and these animals are already thin. And so I, I I threw them into brumation to try to rescue them. And then my wine cooler went out (laughs) Yeah, and And, and my my wine cooler went out and uh, then I lost most of the animals. I'm like, well, I guess that's it. (laughs) So, Uh, so Jen, just because, you know, 
we want to make sure that we, yeah, well, not only that, but I also want to pinpoint a couple of like key targets here. Yeah. So what would you recommend keepers do preventatively in their collection as mitigation, but also proper cleanliness just to be cautious of, but also, you know, preemptively thinking my, my, my thought has always been you prepare for the worst by preparing for the yeah, worst, right? you are cautious and overstructured. So what would be your recommendations? I mean, do you think like catchy fly traps are helpful? Do you think? Well, they cleaning? definitely are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I've been able to keep the flies down drastically, and again, this is going to be a Florida king snakes can handle this, but a lot of species won't be able to, is working on dryness. Just those flies don't do well without the humidity. And so everything's in air conditioning right now. And I noticed, and I noticed that I can actually keep them out pretty well by, you know, making sure the I, my substrate stays dry, which means you've got to make sure they stay hydrated with lots of water. So king snakes can handle that. They can handle it being very dry and just seeking out water. And they'll hang out in their water bowls all day when you do that. Um, and that's just to keep, just as an experiment, it worked. Um, you know, I don't have flies everywhere right now and i've got you know over 100 babies here still but and and there's not zero but it's not you know it's not a level of concern where i'm worried about it spreading disease either because the titers are just that low um and of course with the babies in mind you know everyone's like you know the few people you know mostly i've been trying to it is a taboo subject but mostly i've kept it quiet just because of you know for those of you who don't know, when you're in research, people can scoop your work and they can publish before you. And that's a big thing for Zach over here, who's trying to get his students published. That's a big part of that. And so we, we have to keep quiet so people don't steal our data. <laughs> but, you know, it's not, you know, and then we don't want people to say he said, she said. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that I learned from some expert breeders is just you can keep the flies out of smaller containers with pantyhose. And I know that sounds ridiculous. So instead of buying pantyhose, I bought something similar to that. Um, but you can actually, and you know, so what I'll say to that is, yes, you can keep animals in a collection squeaky clean with these, I call them fly condoms, and and, and you can do that. Uh, but the amount of extra work you have to do to keep that on and, and clip them and all that stuff. It's, it's a lot of work and, you know, it's not something I want to do every year. Uh, but it's something that, you know, everybody said, how are you going to do what you do without, you know, potentially risking the other animals that you're selling to people? And I said, well, let's use what we know. And nobody's gotten anything that's come back positive because, but the level of work involved, (laughs) it's It's just, Uh, yeah, it's a lot of work. So, if, you know, and I under, you got to understand how much work breeders already put in. And it just got to the point with working this new job and, and with humans and, and my teaching job and this, I just can't maintain a collection that size and do that kind of thing anymore. So that's why when Zach found, you know, Zach was kind of enticing me and that's how he got the, the bulk of the, the main collection, the, the adults. And, and so, you know, we agreed that it would be better if we, we continued the research over there and in the university where we can have proper quarantine rooms because 
ideally you can seal off a room and get make it so that you can you can even work on airflow it's how much how much time and effort do you want to put into it because you can do it i've proven you can do it with certainty but uh the amount of work the extra work you have to do is astronomical i mean you're you're increasing your workload by at least three times so if you're already working 40 hours a week as a as a breeder and you know, and I know you add this extra step onto there, it's, you know, you're better off getting a, a, another room somewhere that you can isolate off and keep the flies from getting in if you can. Very, yeah, very cool. So it's, it's not, you know, and it's not just crypto you have to be worried about. That's just the one that we were talking about because of the big mystery and, that's the, the research we were focusing on, but there's so many other organisms that infect, that infect, and some of them are commensals and some are opportunists. Yeah, uh, I so, can so, actually so, speak to that real quick. So when we were, great example is that crypto is a boogeyman, and people need a boogeyman. They need something to to blame things on. And when we were nearing the end of our big outbreak, which we have completely gotten under control at the university and all that and and uh we had basically set up part of our protocol was that any animal that showed um any sign of 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 cryptosporidiosis we were going to euthanize at that point this is before we got to where i am currently this is the whole thing with science is you learn and change and learn and change and so on uh, so we had uh some animals that showed evidence of of having cryptosporidiosis so we took them to the vet and they were euthanized and um one of those animals was a um uh all right matt i need your help oreo cryptophis lat um porphyracea latisinctus is which one the, the broad-banded broad-banded bamboo rat snake i think that's right and so they regurge and die and so we sent all these animals totally expecting we sent them to the university of georgia and we had them do the necropsies that they do and the full pathology. They made slides. I mean, it was expensive. And here we thought all those animals had crypto based off all the diagnoses we have learned. None of them had crypto. Every single one of them had died from something else. And what was really interesting is that most of them had actually died from um, fungal infections in their lungs. Because when I went back and actually looked at the way we were housing them at the time, um, they were not ventilated anywhere near as much as they needed to be. And subsequent to getting those results, we've, we ventilate the hell out of everything now. Um, but it, it just goes to show that, that, you know, think, get the samples, talk to your vet and send things away before you make the call. It's crypto and kill everything because here I am. All that knowledge, and I was dead wrong. <laughs> I was completely wrong with the diagnosis. And, so, and I wouldn't just kill out everything anyway because, no. for one, it takes a while to even see symptoms. So that corn, the, the preliminary corn stick, the two corn stick experiment was it took it took uh, what was it? It took six weeks from putting these hatchling animals that we knew they ought to be clean because they came right out of the egg and we know crypto can't transmit that yeah. way. Uh, so we put them in there and it took six weeks before they started showing symptoms mm-hmm. and they didn't, they died from emaciation. They didn't just drop dead. They never do. They live, 
they, they will live as long as you keep them hydrated and until they run out of fuel, like a kind of like the, the Saturnidae moths. They just mm-hmm. keep going until they, they run out of fat yeah. to live off of. So, you know, so the fact that it's already in your collection, one of the things we were discussing is it's probably better to just, if you have the flies and you can't manage to keep them down is to one check to see if check the flies to see if they're actually, uh, if it's there, because Mm -hmm. chances are the rest of your collection has been exposed to it. And, and they may just be silently harboring it. So yeah, you killed these 10 animals, but the other 50 you had have it there and you won't see it for another year, maybe five years because you're, when your husbandry is good, Snakes have an immune system and you don't tend to see it. And so what a lot of the blame and pointing goes is, you know, there's a lot of breeders that probably have it in their collection and they go to ship it. And now they've been, that's that particular stress seems to bring it out. Yes. And, uh, and, and they, and now that animal is there. And then a couple weeks later, after they receive it, it starts regurging and the breeders like, okay, I tested my collection and everything is negative. I tested five random animals in my collection and it's all negative. And the breeder's not lying about that. It really is negative. It's the, that those animals weren't stressed out, and and it's not there. It's it just it's it's not expressing, and it's not currently infecting anything. And and so that can happen where you have animals. Uh, somebody buys an adult animal from somebody, and you shipped it, and now that animal starts showing symptoms, but no one can pull a positive in the collection. So this is why they call it. It's it's cryptic because. You would think, okay, if I have it, it had to come from the guy I got it from, and and it, and it was, but not if they can't detect it. So sitting there demanding the that that breeder go and and then of course they're gonna check their stuff. And you yeah. know, I, at one point I had a guy got something from me, and I think we we think we got he got it from the the uh, the ball pythons he had. I had a completely different strain of crypto. I had mm-hmm. the lizard one. And and in a random search, and I was like, none of these things have any symptoms, and it's not even the right species. So, you know, it was like, where did he get it from? And so, and I couldn't pull a positive on there at all on on that species. So it's really hard to say. And my animals were pretty stressed out at that time from some kind of heat wave I had. So, you know, the fact that I was even a pull a positive off a different species I'm sure we can start finding the tortoise and snakes too. We'll, we'll probably find everything if we look for it. <laughs> yep. And that's the big difference is whether you're looking for it or not. You know, I've seen plenty of collections with random regurges and this and that. You know, we don't know what that is. And it's not necessarily crypto either. Regurge is a symptom of just about everything. Um, so, you know, yep. and, and I've only had, I think, two of them ever bloated. So, that you know, if you see the bloat, you can bring, that's the only sign that, yeah, it's crypto, but uh, most of the animals that I've, I've I've interacted with with other people's collections and my own, when I was dealing with that, is they don't do the bloat. They they regurge or they'll refuse to eat, and they'll just outright refuse to eat. Yep. But they don't actually do the bloat thing necessarily. So it's one of those. Yeah, that's the hallmark of it. But when the majority of them don't don't express that symptom, you know, you can't just rely on that as your indicator. You do need to get it tested. Uh, and, and it's everywhere and, and, and many famous breeders. So, and that's why we don't want to sit there and start demonizing it because you've probably been living with it the whole time and you've had it the whole time and those breeders had it the whole time. But if it really is a wild, uh, parasite, 
that, and we keep reintroducing it, we've managed to figure out we didn't know what it was and it was there and we've managed to keep collections of animals. We don't have to euthanize them all. We need to work on our husbandry skills. 100%. Because if it's because if it's really there and this is the true test, everything I have is captive bred at this point here. And if it comes back because I don't bring anything else in there that's not out of egg and it comes back, we're going to have to start you know, start checking the environment and seeing if that's what's going on because of, you know, me, how I'm going to sterilize everything. I'm going to end up with white hands at the end of it. <laughs> there you go. After, right. So, so, you know, we're, we, we have that opportunity because, you know, we really don't know and all my stuff was testing negative and that was the issue is, so you have a collection full of negative, negative testing snakes and I can't prove anything one way or the other that were isolated from that other population. But and, we don't know. And that is why when you get your animals, it is important to put them in a quarantine because the stress of the shipping is what's going to cause them to express the disease. And as long as you, you know, you've got them in a separate place um, with walls and doors, like quarantine is not the other side of the snake room. It's like another floor of the house or even a completely different building. Uh, COVID six feet away. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there, there we go. So we don't have time to, to hit the, the next parasite. Strongaloides on this one, but we'll have to have you back on again, Jen. Yeah, we, this, we can do a little bit about I, – I don't – I mean, I'm not the world expert on it. It was yeah. just something that now no. I passed off to you because I didn't feel like dealing with no, it. We will, it's, we will hit that one in a future episode for sure because that's, that's kind of the other end of the spectrum. That one we, we – that one's just gross. Not the crypto's not. Gross. I just wish that I just but, wish we had a veterinary manual that told you how to deal with it because they do, and then you follow their protocol and it doesn't work. Yeah. Not that you guys again. You go to a veterinarian. I, I have. That's where I get to use my letters and say I get to do this because it's an experiment. But don't experiment on your own animals and you love your animals, right? So please always go to the vet if you're. You know, if you want to do some experiments with your vet under your vet's supervision, that's. That's great. We, we, we can use that data. So if people want to find you and talk crypto, talk Florida King snakes, <laughs> where do they go to find you? Uh, you know, I'm going to do what I can right now with, uh-huh. with, with my, my current situation. Um, you know, you can just, uh, I guess, hit me up on Facebook Messenger. Um, everyone knows who I am and I'm, I, I will get to you eventually, but I, I can't promise you with, with, I've got to take care of my own students and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you're busy just like Matt and I. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, we just, we're workaholics and that's what we are. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm really glad we're finally going to get to pass on the baton and have your students doing all the work, mm-hmm. because as you see, I can't do an experiment while trying to juggle 60 other things without screwing it up with the temperature <laughs> yeah i'm used to e coli i fry it it's not a big deal i just grow some more mm-hmm. i don't have to wait another year to hatch out another there you go another 12 snakes to sit there and use it with the control population and and then all these odds and ends that go wrong that you're that had nothing to do with your experiment yep so hopefully we'll get some better data out of there and we'll be able to resolve this problem once and for all of with the outdoors and everything. Yep. All righty. Well, this has been great. Um, awesome. Thanks for coming on. We've truly yeah, enjoyed welcome. this conversation. So Matt, if people want to find you, where do they go to find you? Uh, Sarpa Mitra on Facebook or Sarpa Mitra USA on Instagram. Okay. 
And as always, we thank the NPR Network for being willing to have a colubrid show. Uh, we, we are proud to be members of that network. Uh, and we plan on being here, hopefully, for quite some time. People that want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Instagram, Dr. Crawdad there, because my day job, I'm an astrologist, crayfish biologist. Uh, and uh, if on Facebook, um, Zach Loafman, that's where you can find me. So this has been another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Thank you all for listening. Have a good one. 